0: I'm thrilled to be here with you in contemporary worship at San Marino Community Church. I realize there may be some of you that don't know who I am. You've been attending worship here. And uh, I'm Reverend Jeff O'Grady, the pastor of the San Marino Community Church. It's been quite a week this week. Uh, There was some news that came out at the end of the week. and So for a moment, I want to take a little time of personal privilege to speak to that news. I released the information this week to the session and to the congregation that I intend to retire on or before June 1st, 2021. And I wish like mad that we were all in the same room and I could do this personally with you and we could have this discussion. But the best I can do is use this technology to try and communicate with you what's on my heart. A new season is emerging for the church, and it's emerging for me personally. Next spring, I'll be 66 years old, and I'm looking forward to spending more time with my family, with my children, three children, and five grandchildren. They're in far-flung parts of the country. We have two children and five grandchildren that live in the South, And a daughter and son-in-law who live in Los Gatos, California. And we look forward to spending more time with them after I retire. My wife Lynn and I have bought a home in Nashville, Tennessee. And we intend to spend a good deal of time there. Enjoying our grandchildren and spending time with our family. I want to thank you for the trust that you've given to me as your pastor. I want to thank you for the ways in which the last 15 years have so enriched my life. And I hope it's enriched your life and our corporate life together. The many prayers, the notes, the many kindnesses, even since the news came out, the emails and the phone calls. I'm truly grateful for the ways in which you've responded in such supportive ways. We have several months together before I retire and I look forward to a time when we can see one again, see one another again personally and face-to-face and when we can celebrate all that God has done these last 15 years. This week, you will receive some information from the session that will help you understand the process for moving forward in leadership for the church. I'm confident, I'm confident in the Lord that the best years for San Marino Community Church are ahead of you. And I'm truly grateful. It's been my privilege to be able to strengthen the foundation upon which others will build. Speaking of foundations, let's turn to the scripture for today. We're continuing in our summer sermon series, less faith, uh, excuse me, less fear, more faith, less fear, more faith. And so we're continuing in our study of the book of Romans today. Romans 11, beginning with the 13th verse. I invite you to listen for God's word for you. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I glorify my ministry in order to make my own people jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. And if the root is holy, then the branches also are holy. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in their place to share the rich root of the olive tree, do not boast over the branches. If you do boast, remember that it's not you that support the root, but the root that supports you. You will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Well, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand only through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, perhaps he will not spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness toward you. Provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And even those of Israel, if they do not persist in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you've been cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, throughout the scriptural witness, The life of God's people is illustrated with these agricultural images that may have been much more familiar to people in the first century than they are to us. Like this, those whose hearts turn away from the Lord are like shrubs in the desert. They live in the parched places in the wilderness. Or conversely, those who trust in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord, are like trees planted by the water. They do not fear when the heat comes or the year of the drought because they have roots beneath the surface that nourish them. And so they continue to bear fruit in spite of what happens above ground. Other images of agriculture come to mind on the lips of Jesus. He says, Beware of false prophets, you'll know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorns or figs from thistles? In the same way every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. Thus you will know them by their fruits, says Jesus. So, it's no real surprise that while Jesus is walking with his disciples through the garden of Gethsemane, surrounded by olive trees and vines, he turns to them and he says this, I am the vine My father is the vine grower. Abide in me as I abide in you. I've said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy might be complete. In other words, God is above us, the gardener, and there is nothing that brings more joy to the Lord than a human being fully alive bearing fruit in life and that only happens when you remain connected and rooted beneath the surface life flows through all the connected parts the roots the branches the leaves the tendrils the fruit life requires connections There's an old story about a newspaper reporter that had the opportunity to interview an entrepreneur who had been quite successful. And so he approached him and he said, how did you make all of this happen? How did you become so successful? Well, I'm glad you asked, said the entrepreneur. Actually, it's kind of a wonderful story. My wife and I were first married and we had really nothing more than a roof over our head and between the two of us, maybe a nickel. So I took that nickel down to the grocery store and I bought an apple and I shined it up and I sold it for 10 cents. And then I took that 10 cents and I bought two more apples and I shined them up and I, sent them, I sold them for 20 cents. The reporter is going, wow, this is great. This is a Horatio Alger story, a success story in the American economy. He said, what did you do then? Well, then my father-in-law died, he said, and left us 20 million dollars. Now that man prospered, but it wasn't because of his ingenuity, it wasn't because of his hard work, it was because he was connected. We all know the value of networking. I mean, online, you may be on LinkedIn or Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or some other social networking effort. I, we ask people who are connected all the time to write letters of recommendation for us to college or for jobs. We choose colleges based on the connections that they will make for us so that when we graduate, we already have a connected world. We know the value of connections. You want to join a country club, you want to run for school board, you want to get elected to the city council, it all takes connections. Just a few years ago, I had a chance to visit the Flora Springs Vineyard in Napa Valley with several seminary presidents. Ted and Julie are the owners there, and Julie attended one of the seminaries. It's a family-owned business that Julie's parents bought back in the 1970s, and Ted, her husband, has become the horticulturalist for the vineyard. And he's apparently become quite good over the years because just a few years ago, he uh, he received grower of the year in the Napa Valley, which can't be easy. So they took us out to their vineyard to show us how to cut back a vine. One prunes the way one does roses, and it's at a similar time of year when the plant is the most dormant. But what amazed me is that 70% of the vine is pruned away, and it's burned then to prevent disease. It's the same way they did it in the first century. The gardener cuts near the buds. Cone pruning, excuse me, cane pruning is one form that allows the healthiest two canes to remain. All the others are removed and usually there's a trellis that those canes are allowed to grow upon. Another form of pruning is called spur pruning. It takes about 20 minutes per vine and the point was clear after the demonstration Sometimes for new growth to occur in any living organism, pruning is needed, and sometimes it seems really drastic. Sometimes the Lord prunes the things out of our lives in order that there can be new growth. And sometimes it's even painful. Jesus uses the metaphor of vines and branches For those who walked by vineyards every day to instruct them about how to live the spiritual life. In essence, he says to be fruitful, you have to be connected. We all know that on some level. But Jesus goes further. He says the truly fruitful life is the one that's connected to him. And then he goes even further. He says... Apart from me, you can't do anything at all. It's vitally important to stay connected to Christ in order to realize our potential and to live a truly fruitful life. Paul puts it this way in Romans 11. Remember that it's not you that supports the root, but the root that supports you. I think a way to illustrate what Paul's talking about is a story that I've used in the past, but I think it fits so well here. It was the fifth assembly of the World Council of Churches. And as it was drawing to a close, a well-known anthropologist, Dr. Margaret Mead, rose to her feet and approached the microphone. She surveyed this vast throng of people, Two and a half thousand people. Many cultures, many denominational labels speaking hundreds of different languages. People ranging from a Ghanaian judge to a Memphis used car salesman. From the Archbishop of Canterbury to a tribesman from northern Kenya that walked three days just to be present and to pray. Dr. Mead looked at that gathering throng and she said, you people are a sociological impossibility. You have nothing in common except your extraordinary conviction that Jesus Christ is savior of the world. You know, that simple conviction, it's been enough to Motivate believers to share the good news of the gospel with others, sometimes at great personal sacrifice. That simple conviction has been enough to motivate believers to create communities of worship and learning all over the world. That simple conviction has been enough for believers to build institutions of higher education and to teach children of all colors and creeds and abilities and backgrounds. How to read, how to write, how to add and subtract. That simple conviction has moved people to construct hospitals and clinics, retirement homes and facilities for those with disabilities, to care for those who can no longer care for themselves. It's a grand vision of community. A place where we become more than just the sum of our parts. A place where we take our place at a table. Where our name tag is there in front of our chair. But so too are the name tags of all of those with whom we differ. It's a community known not for uniformity but for the sociological impossibility of a unity that actually transcends our differences. And it's been throughout human history that this unity is possible to those who are separated from one another. The Apostle Paul in Romans here in our text today and in Galatians is arguing for a little sociological impossibility for Jews and Gentiles to live together. At the heart of his argument, he seems to believe that by being connected to this root, grafted into Christ, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, children and the elderly, black and white, native and immigrant, can become part of something that actually transcends their differences and creates something entirely new called the kingdom of God. There is no longer Jew or Greek, writes Paul in Galatians. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. We don't lose our particularity, our individuality, but we gain a universa- universality in our perspective and our outlook and our connection with one another. Yeah, I'm reading a book uh, entitled "Exclusion and Embrace" by Dr. Miroslav Volf. And he writes about the years between 1991 and 1995: "The War in Former Yugoslavia. Quote, Increased the already oversized vocabulary of evil with the phrase ethnic cleansing. He argues that Christian faith has the capacity to embrace the other without demonizing them. We've seen the alternative ethnic cleansing to drive out the other so that only the pure bloods remain the pure culture is only allowed to live in the land the result a world without the other writes wolf the price rivers of blood and tears miroslav wolf is an ethnic croatian he writes I spent six weeks in war-torn Croatia in the fall of 92. Its territories occupied, its cities and villages destroyed, its people killed and driven out. There it became clear to me what in a sense I knew all along. The problem of ethnic and cultural conflicts is part of a larger problem of identity and otherness. See, the book of Romans is struggling with that very same issue as Paul reflects on the place of the Jew and the Gentile in God's unfolding drama in this world. It's a problem of identity and otherness. Now we in our culture have added to our vocabulary expressions like cancel culture. We tear down statues seeking to cleanse history of an unwanted past. We want to whitewash history from our history books. We sit in moral judgment on those who preceded us. And the great danger, it seems to me, in all of this, is we're so overly confident in our own perspectives. We think ourselves so morally superior. If you don't agree with me... You should be cleansed from the church or from our political party or from the community or from the country. Isn't that one branch saying to another branch, I'm better than you are? Do not become proud, says Paul. Stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, perhaps he will not spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Remember, it's not you that support the root. The root supports you. So let judgment begin with the house of God. If we're truly rooted in Christ, truly grafted into the kingdom of God, how can we be so sure of ourselves rather than humbly grateful for God's kindness to each and every one of us? Why do we feel so superior to others in our nation? Because of where our ancestors came from or when they came or what deck of the ship they came on. What difference does it make really? Every deck of the ship that we're on currently in this world has COVID-19. We're all vulnerable. Every deck of the ship we're on is infected with the sin of arrogance and cancel culture and ethnic cleansing, and fear of the other. That's no grand vision. It's a sad one. This is not our finest moment. It's a potentially tragic moment in our history. I think what happened this week at Liberty University is an example of the kind of hubris that Paul talks about. Note then, The kindness and the severity of God. The gardener. The one who creates it and makes it all possible. Paul knew it's not just how you act in the world, it's what you think about. It's not just how you treat others, it's how you think about them. It's how you think about yourself, your own identity. That's what matters. See, I I believe God's unity is not what we think it might be. It's a gift. It comes more as a byproduct than by constant attention to trying to be focused on building unity. The community that's focused upon the mission of Christ begins to move towards addressing the needs of others, and they find unity and community along the way. You know... At night, with night vision, you can actually see things better if you don't look directly at it. Night vision requires peripheral vision. That's when it begins to come into focus. Unity within the faith community comes into focus really better in our peripheral vision. The church that's focused exclusively upon becoming more unified will never realize its dream. It will more likely attempt to become uniform and thus cease to be the church of Jesus Christ. There's an old story, maybe you've heard it, about a station that was established on a dangerous seacoast in a place where many ships were wrecked due to the stormy seas and the precarious coastline. Again and again, brave volunteers went out into those stormy seas to rescue people from drowning. And often those who were saved joined those courageous and dedicated group of volunteers and the group began to grow. So they built some new sheds to protect their boats and they provided shelter for those who were rescued from the sea. Before long, they erected a building for the victims of shipwrecks where they could be more comfortable. And then later on, they added a restaurant and some game rooms and a lounge for themselves. And as the station grew in size and prestige, Many more members joined. Time passed and the members hired workers then to go out and do the life-saving while they came just to enjoy the club. Soon members began to express some dissatisfaction with the inconvenience of having wet floors from all this rescue effort. So at last they had a meeting and they decided to discontinue the life-saving effort altogether. Some of the members complained that they had abandoned their primary purpose and mission. So they resigned and they started a real life saving station down the coast. And the story goes that even today you can visit the seacoast in Australia and you'll find a whole series of exclusive clubs, but not one life saving station. Not anymore. Fundamentally, the church is a life-saving station. It must never become a private club. But it's the nature of things to gravitate to where we're most comfortable and to seek out our own comfort rather than to embrace the mission and the purposes of God. It's been said that Jesus came not only to comfort the afflicted, but also to afflict the comfortable. It's the mission of the church and our focus upon it. That's what leads to greater unity in our community and congregation. As we, as a community of faith, embrace the work that our Lord has called us to do, we'll increasingly discover the surprise of being connected. Alive. Across all the differences that may divide others. We'll relate to one another across the age spectrum. Generational differences won't impede our care for one another. Gender differences will be celebrated, and men and women will learn together how to live in community, how to depend upon one another. Racial and ethnic differences will not determine where or how we worship. Or who we enjoy coffee with in the courtyard after worship. Single people will find the church to be a place of life-saving. Single parents will find the church to be a place where their children are supported and not alone. Those with disabilities will not feel excluded. But will find the church to be a place where their needs have been anticipated. And their presence is missed when they're not present. I believe God is leading us toward a new kind of community, a new unity that's centered in the root of Jesus Christ where the needs of all are addressed by the resources of all and where everyone matters and has a place of belonging. That's what it means to be in God's garden. So let's all do our part Let's do our share to create such a place. Whatever you can do to reach out and provide hospitality to others, to volunteer your time, your talents, to build up the community, or to share your treasure and resources to meet the needs and commitments of the church for those who are most in need, offer it with gratitude and generosity. It's more important than you know. We belong to one another because we belong to Jesus Christ. It's a sociological impossibility, perhaps. But it's precisely what the world needs most now. A new kind of community that's created for the purpose of saving others. And in the process we find our own most deepest needs met. Those who trust in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord's, they're like trees planted by the water. They do not fear when the heat comes or the year of the drought because they have roots beneath the surface that nourish them. And so they continue to bear fruit in spite of what happens above ground. Our Lord and Savior has said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit and glorify God. I've said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Thanks be to God. Amen.